The rich blessings that God has given us as His children are always present, but sometimes we lose perspective on what He has made available to us. In this lesson, we look at Paul's instruction to the Ephesian church through his daily prayer for them. All this and more as we continue our year of the family. I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What Podcast. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to finish the chapter starting in verse 15. And the word of the day, the word of the day is perspective. Perspective. The viewpoint uh, from heaven. So if you remember last week we talked about Paul, Paul was... Um, going through in these first several verses from 3 to 14, and he, he writes this one-sentence paragraph, one-sentence poem, um, and he describes these, um, these spiritual blessings, the things that, that God has provided and made available to us. And um, what he's going to do in these next few verses is he's going to say, okay, given all the things that we've talked about before, about the richness of what God has provided, um, these spiritual blessings, remember they are... Um, fruits of the Spirit, they are the gifts of the Spirit, and they are the drive for good works. So these things are ways that God has not only shown Himself to the world through us, or, and also that He allows us to share in His glory, but also what He is doing is He is actively allowing us to help redeem the world. So these, this is, a, this is a, a pretty significant thing. So in these next verses, through the rest of the chapter, what He's going to do is He is going to acknowledge... Um, where the Ephesian church is in the, at the present moment, and he's also going to pray for them that their mind would be open, their eyes would be open to see exactly the fullness of what these things are. Okay, so let's read the last of chapter 1, and then we'll go through and we'll talk about it. Beginning in verse 15, he says, For this reason, meaning what we talked about last week, for this reason too, I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your loved ones, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of Him, so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of His glory and His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of His strength which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, these first couple verses... Um, he says, for this reason, pointing back to what we talked about, given the testimony of what God has done in redeeming the world, um, Paul expresses his thankfulness that the church at, at Ephesus has been faithful. He, he knows the reputation. He knows that they have, uh, they've been living this out. And so he's calling them to this, this reputation. You know, it's the, the, um, the old leadership phrases, he's giving them a reputation to live up to. He says, this, this is genuine. I, I have a genuine love for you. One of the things that he, uh, he points out, he points out that they have a sincere faith in Jesus, and then they have a love for the saints. John tells us in 1 John that one of the key indicators of someone having an authentic faith is that they have a genuine love for other believers. 
So consider in our generation, and we talked about that, that Ephesians is a practical book for us because he's writing to a, a, a church that lives in a pagan culture that doesn't have any biblical construct besides the Hebrews that are, that are part of the church, right? So they're, they're learning all this for the first time. So for us, as we look at this, think about parts of our culture, that there is a, there is a vast um, group of people, I have, I have many of them in my family, extended family, that don't like, quote, organized religion. They don't like being part of a church. They don't like being sitting under godly teaching. They don't like being associated. They want to have a private faith. Given what he says, that, that he praises them for their authentic love for other believers, and given what John says in his first letter, in 1 John, that authentic love for other believers is a sign of true, honest faith, that means that something is not stacking up here. It means that, that for us, as we think about what God's priorities are, God's perspective about life, we need to remember that how we see other believers is an indication of what our perspective is framed around. If our perspective is framed about, around what we want, our priorities, our desires, we are not going to want to carve things out, carve part of our life out for other believers. Think about what James says in the fourth chapter of his book, where he says, why is there contention among you? Why is there fighting among you? You're praying for things that you can consume them on your own lusts. But he says, don't you know that the Spirit of God that's in you yearns jealously against these things? What happens is whenever we disconnect ourselves from a godly perspective, there becomes a, a spirit of division within our life to where we see other believers as competition for our priorities. We're not seeing things from a godly perspective, and so we, we push them away. We limit our contact with them. And we blame them for our own rebellion. So Paul begins by saying, I know this honest faith that you have in the Lord Jesus and the sincere love that you have for all the saints. And he is, uh, he's encouraged by that. Now later on, about 30 years later, when, remember the, the Apostle John spent time at Ephesus? Uh, church history tells us that he, he retired there with Jesus, the mother, or with, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he was exiled to the island of Patmos, which is about 30 miles off the coast of Ephesus, um, where the Lord visited him and he gave him the revelation, the book of Revelation that we have. 35 years later, as, as John is on the island of Patmos, God tells him in Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus tells him in a vision, that the church of Ephesus has lost their first love. They've forgotten their first love, which is this honest faith in the Lord Jesus and a love for the saints. They've gotten so good at church that they forgot to see people. They didn't realize that God had moved on and wasn't attending anymore. So this is something that is, that is crucial to the beginning of, of a church. So he says that he doesn't cease to pray for them, and that he always gives thanks for them. Um, his prayer is very specific. Now look at this. He says um, that he's praying that the Father of glory would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of Him. The first thing we've got to understand is that we, we tend to think of our contribution to what God is doing first. We think, for instance, okay, well, um, God saved me, yes. God's given me grace, yes. But I'm providing the faith. I'm the one who's made the choice to follow Him. But have we really? We wouldn't have the capacity to make these decisions unless God had given us the capacity. Right? Remember, we, we, we learned in the first, first several verses of Ephesians 1 that God has ordained this structure, this, this plan. Remember, we looked at the grid of how God sees the world. 
that all things are connected all at the same time. God has, has pre-ordered how things are going to shake out. And so he says that my prayer for you, that the Father of glory, who is the one who gives all good gifts, would give you this incredible perspective, the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the full knowledge of him. Now, these are really incredible things. The spirit of wisdom that he's talking about here is not necessarily, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit specifically. What he's doing is he is, he's, he's saying, my hope is that you would have a divine perspective about the world. That you would be able to see things the way that God sees them. That you would have an abiding relationship with the Holy Spirit that's so close that you know exactly how to, how to navigate each moment. The spirit of wisdom is the same thing that we learned last year when we looked at Solomon. That when God came to Solomon when he became the king, in uh, in First Kings chapter four, that he uh, or chapter three, he asked him, "If you could have anything, what do you want?" And typically, if you've grown up in church, the answer is he asked for wisdom, right? But what we learned last year that he asked for a shema leib, a listening heart, which is different than wisdom. What Solomon was asking for was this spirit of wisdom, this idea to be this this perspective to be able to see the world within God's framework. Not confined to the, to the, to the limits of, of a present moment. Remember, we think linearly where we're, our, our life has a beginning and it progresses and then it has an end. But to see things externally from our current situation. You see, the problem is that our perspective is limited by where we are and everything that we've experienced beforehand. It's hard for us to think about the future because the future is full of uncertainty. The future, the thought of the future is a constant reminder that we're not in control, that we're not God. But by the same token, it's also rebellious for us to be dwelling in the past, thinking about all the things that have happened to us in the past and ascribing blame to other people and not acknowledging that everything, all of our life, is covered by God's grace. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about yesterday. Worry about today, the present. Because this is where we have the divine perspective. See, everything that's happened before this present moment is gone. Can't be changed. Like a bullet down range. It can't be changed. Everything, to the, everything in the future is not ours to control because that's God's territory. Jesus says that the worries of today are sufficient. We don't have to pile on more worries from tomorrow. So by living right here, what it allows us to do is we're allowed to be able to see things from this incredible perspective. So this spirit of wisdom. Now, Another thing about Solomon is that this, this points out our own weakness, our own humanity, that, that we are corrupted in and, of, in and of ourselves, that we are terrible people, right? Because even Solomon, he had this unlimited perspective. It says in 1 first, first Kings 4 that God not only gave him wisdom, but a heart that has never been matched in depth. That he had such a close understanding of God's perspective of the world that he saw things four-dimensionally almost. And yet, even Solomon, we know, began to drift at the end of his life with his perspective. You can read the entire book of Ecclesiastes and show that, that the, the product of Solomon's life, even though he had this divine perspective, he comes away at the end and he's like, listen, even when I had things perfectly, it wasn't enough. And I still lost my way. So that's why Paul pairs the spirit of wisdom with the revelation in the full knowledge of him. This idea comes from the, uh, the principle of understanding the Word. Your Word I've hidden in my heart 
so that I might not, what? Sin against you. Right? This revelation, this understanding, this, this full knowledge of Him. The Word produces in us knowledge of God. Remember, the first question that we ask whenever we read the Bible is, what does this teach me about God? Because that frames everything. If I jump to what this means about me, then I'm reading myself into the text. I'm eisegeting the text, right? God is first. What does this teach me about God? Second, what does this teach me about mankind? Because given in light of who God is, it's going to show the separation of who we are as people, right? And after that, okay, now we've got a crisis because we realize that there is a fault line. There's a division between me and God. So that's, that's, that spawns out the response. What do I do with this? This divine wisdom, this spirit of wisdom, and this knowledge and revelation of Him, notice, underline that, that word Him, he's talking about Jesus. That he's saying, my prayer for you, given, given the light of how extreme these spiritual blessings are in heaven, my prayer for you is not that you would be a good person. It's not that you would have success. It's not that you would be able to, to be prosperous in everything that you do. It's that you would know and understand God. Because this is the center of all things. Solomon, at the end of his life, at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, let us hear the full extent of the matter. He says, love God and fear, love God and obey his commandments, for this is man's all. This is what Paul's talking about here, this idea of revelation of the full knowledge of him. He's praying that they would know and understand who God was. Now, in the course of my study, I found something that, that I think is really telling here. I don't, I don't like to read long passages, but um, one commentator put it this way, and I thought it was very poignant. Because if we're not careful, what we do is we begin to think that this revelation of God or this, this spirit of wisdom is something that God gives in stages, that He doles it out um, and He gives it by degrees. You know, okay, well, if you have a certain amount of faith, then I'm going to give you more understanding. If you have a certain number of, of days in the church, I'm going to give you this special thing. But that's not the case. Listen to this. This writer says, Today many Christians spend a great deal of time and effort vainly looking for blessings already available to them. They pray for God's light, although He has already supplied light in abundance through His Word. Their need is to follow the light that they already have. They pray for strength, although the Word tells them that they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. Philippians 4.13 They pray for more love, although Paul says that God's own love is already poured out within their hearts through the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5 they pray for more grace, although the Lord says the grace He has already given them is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12.9 They pray for peace, although the Lord has given them His own peace, which surpasses all comprehension. Philippians 4 It is expected that we pray for such, th such blessings if the tone of the prayer is one of seeking the grace to appropriate what has already been given, rather than one pleading for something we think we scarcely have available or that God is reluctantly going to share it with us. The Christian's primary need is for wisdom and obedience to appropriate, to appropriate the abundance of blessing that the Lord has already given. Our problem is not lack of blessings, but lack of insight and wisdom to understand and use them properly and faithfully. What he's saying here is that our problem is not that God 
He needs to give us more grace or he needs to give us more peace or he needs to give us more perspective. All of those things have been given to us in overwhelming abundance. We spent a whole hour last week talking about the the richness of God's grace, these vast reservoirs of grace and the joy that he has, the experiences whenever he lavishes his grace on us because that's who he is. The reason he gives us difficulty is so that he can give us his grace because he enjoys it. But what we do is we, we pray for things like, God, give me peace today. God, give me understanding today. God, give me grace today. And yet, if we read His Word, what we begin to realize is that those prayers are prayers of ignorance. Because He has given us those things. An overwhelming abundance. This lamp, for instance. This lamp is already plugged in. Right? Do I need to pray for electricity? Do I need to pray for power? Do I need to pray for this thing to come on to illuminate this room? No. I have to make a conscious decision to turn it on. In the same way, John 15 tells us that we have a decision that we can make. We can choose to live by our perspective and keep things off, to not be submissive to the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of who He is, understand that God is God and I am not, or we can choose to submit ourselves to the reality that He has already supplied us with all these things. So what happens is that we, we tend to let, um, let our minds, our own sinfulness, run away with our perspective. I read this week that uh, one author said that um, we spend more time letting our mind talk to us than we do talking to our mind. What happens when you sit idly? Your mind fills with all kinds of things, right? I know the enemy is more than happy to fill your ear with all kinds of doubts and trouble and worries. But how often do we say, you know what? No, I'm going to be live, I'm going to live on purpose. I'm going to declare truth to myself. God, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can, if I can be content in this season of need. Well, no, Philippians 4 tells me that I have learned to be content in all things because I, I know what it is to have a lot and I know what it is to have nothing. And yet in all things, Christ can strengthens me. Lord, I don't know. I don't, I'm, really at un, I'm really in unrest right now. I'm really fearful about my situation. I have, this, I have this anxiety that fills me all the time. Wait a second. Philippians tells me that I should be anxious about nothing. But in everything, by prayer and petition, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be able to bring the struggle to you. Because in bringing the struggle to you, I have the opportunity to thank you for your grace and for your mercy and your understanding and your, and your care in my life. And notice at the end of Philippians 4, he says, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind. Lord, these thoughts, I cannot get out of my mind. My heart is fully in, in unrest. What do I do with these things? I fill it with his word. This revelation of him, the spirit of wisdom. So this enlightenment that comes from the spirit of wisdom, it brings with it several key perspectives, okay? The first is this. To know what is the hope of his calling. This is in verse 18b. In his letter to the Roman church, Paul tells them that hope is the fuel of life. In Romans 8, he says this. He says, For for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance we wait eagerly for it. You see, hope 
as defined by Scripture, it's not just wishful thinking. It's not just the expectation that maybe, maybe, somehow, this is all going to work out. It's a statement of a certainty that the world hopes that they're going to have enough money for groceries in the electric bill. The word hopes that they will have the resources to be able to meet their needs, but there's no certainty. They hope that things are going to work out for the best, but they have no way to control that. And so they grasp for their own self-control. But Paul continues to teach that the children of God not only are the ones who have real hope because the Trinity is actively working in their life, but that God, in spite of them, works all things together for their good. So this perspective that to, to know what is the hope of his calling is to know who God is in his character. That things are working according to his purpose. That God does not necessarily want us to be comfortable, although he loves to give his children good gifts. What he wants is for us to see things the way that they truly are. That means to walk not untouched in consequence from the world, but to walk untouched um, spiritually from the world. One of the things that is challenging is that as you, as you live, you tend to collect the world as you go. I went hiking with my dad a few weeks ago in Arkansas. We hiked up to the top of White Rock Mountain. And um, periodically, we would stop and we would look down and we would notice on our pants and on our socks, there were all kinds of burrs and thistles that we had just picked up just by being in the woods. Some of you have done that. You've walked in the field or you've been out for a walk and you've picked up little green things along the way. Right? And if you're not careful, they work themselves down into your socks and they can rub blisters and they can cause pain and cause irritation and make turn into a, a pretty serious problem. And so periodically you've got to stop and you've got to clean them off of your gear and make sure that you're that you are good to go and you get up and you walk again, right? In the same way for us, as we walk in the world, we're gonna pick up the world. We are. It's just a natural thing. We're out there, we're dealing with sinful people, we are, ourselves are sinful, and so it's important for us to stop for a minute periodically, regularly, to check ourselves to make sure that we haven't picked up stragglers on the way. Because here's the thing about those little burrs. That that's how those plants reproduce. They attach themselves to, to living creatures to be transported and to be planted somewhere else. We don't realize it, but if we don't take the serious work of keeping our souls right with God and this perspective finely tuned, we spread the seeds of the world around our life. That can manifest in our relationship with each other and our marriage. That can manifest itself in the relationships that we have with our friends, with our children, with our, with, our, with our nieces and nephews, with our sisters and our brothers, with our parents and grandparents. So it's important for us to know what the hope of this calling is because if, we are, if we're not taking it seriously, what happens is that we, um, we lose perspective and the hope can be choked out by the cares of this life. The second key perspective comes from the, from the last part of chapter or verse 18 where he says, that the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, to know these things, to know the vastness of the riches. When I think of riches, I'm, I'm perpetually an eight-year-old child in my mind. I think of Scrooge McDuck diving into his vault of, of gold, right? He's swimming in all of his money. Um, the vast riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You know, um, it's funny because we don't think about who we are in Christ often, at least often enough. Now, some, somebody, I can't remember where I heard this. Some writer had said, if you, give a, if you give a man authority, 
he will either become a war hero or he'll become Adolf Hitler. It'll, it'll magnify the character of their heart, right? So some people, they say, oh, well, I'm a child of God. That means that I'm entitled to these things. Totally opposite of God's spirit, right? But a true, authentic believer will understand I'm a child of God. That means that I can walk in authority, yes, but in humility because Jesus is our prime example, right? When I was working for the House of Representatives, I, I did some training in Washington, D.C., and whenever I came on the Capitol steps, they, I checked in with the office and they gave me a staff badge. That meant that I could go anywhere I wanted in the U.S. Capitol. Crazy experience. Walking past security, walking through metal detectors, it didn't matter because I had a staff badge. In the same way, we've been at, given access to the riches of His glory, the inheritance of the saints. The things that Paul talked about in the verses 3 through 14 he, what he's doing is he's saying, listen, if you, if you apply yourself to this perspective to see things from God's, from God's viewpoint, what happens is that you remember, not just in difficulty, but you remember when, you are, when you're laying out your plans for the future, the things that you want to do for your family, the, the, the things that are ahead of you in your marriage, that these are things that you realize that there is no limit to what God can call you to or what you can accomplish. Not that you're building an empire for yourself, but you can literally sit down and say, okay, Lord, you and your spouse, you sit close, you sit across the kitchen table from each other. And you ask the simple question, Lord, what do you want for us as a family? And there is no limit to the answer to that question. He could call you to do anything. Something as simple as, as loving your neighbor, the person that lives next to you, for 30 years. Or, slowly and surely, you can see his hand work in your life, and you can be married for 78 years. And you can see a testimony of what that small little faithfulness does over time. The vast riches of his glory. These are the things that we live under. That, that, that this, our gracious and tender Father, that he wants us to understand that we are not limited to just scraping together the bare necessities of life and then just living until we die. By the same token, we're not, we're not meant to just collect things and then die. Our job is to experience the fullness of who He is. And you know what? The cool thing is that as He provides opportunities for us to see Him work, the most difficult circumstances turns into the most incredible provision. That's amazing. The third thing, the third perspective that comes from, from the spirit of wisdom and from knowing Him is um, the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. There's two major parts to a believer's life. The first is when they become saved. When they, when they surrender their life to God. Right? The salvation experience. The second major event takes a lifetime. This is what we call sanctification. The process of taking someone and turning it into something else to redeeming someone and turning them towards what they were originally created, created to be, a child of God. This sanctification process is, is astounding. He's going to talk about this more in the first 10, chapter, 10 verses of chapter 2, so we're going to save some of that for next week. But um, something that I want to encourage you in is that there are a lot of believers, especially those who have grown up in the church, who are saved at a young age, that, you, that we, we fall into this trap of thinking that... Um, God is powerful enough to save me from my sin, but He's not powerful enough to sustain me. That He's not powerful enough to redeem the moments of my life where I feel overwhelmed. 
that he's not that he's not actively working things together for my good good that he's not architecting my life on a way in a way so that I can know him more fully so that I can experience this spirit of wisdom and this revelation of who he is we are caught in this perpetual cycle of thinking that we've got to prove ourselves to God that we have to to, to we don't have to earn our salvation but we do have to maintain it and that's that's not true it's wickedness if, if our salvation is something that we cannot contribute anything to, to acquire, what makes you think that we can do anything to lose it? And so why would we walk in, in, uh, in defeat when we understand that we have access not only to these vast riches of His glory, this divine perspective to see things truly as they are and to experience Him, but also to understand that there's the surpassing greatness of His power toward us, those who believe. Some people quote Romans 8.28 that God works all things together for those for the good of those who love God and call it according to His purpose. And they prescribe that for unbelievers. They say, oh no, God's working all things together for your good. Not true. That's a, that's a promise reserved for God's children themselves. And He's not talking about providing just comfort. He's talking about working things together towards your godliness. So that you can see Him. The whole context of Romans chapter 8 is He's saying, we are partakers in His glory and co-heirs with Christ in heaven. As he experienced hardship and trial, so we experience hardship and trial. As he overcame, we overcome through him. And in doing that, what happens is that Jesus is elevated, Philippians chapter 2, Jesus is elevated above all creation and proclaimed to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he turns and he says, look at my family, look at my children who have also lived the same thing. In another part of Scripture, it says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Have you ever thought about, the, about it this way? That God had faith first. We don't even contribute our own faith to our salvation. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God believed first that this could happen. He ordained this first that this will happen. And so when we walk in confidence of His power, we need to understand that, that this is something that is massively significant. Paul goes on to finish Romans chapter 8 by saying that we are more than conquerors through Christ who gives us strength. But this power only comes through the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of God's word. The final thing, the fourth thing here, the, the, the fourth perspective, is to see all things according to the working of the might of his strength. Second part of verse 19. This statement is both a final point and a traditional transitional phrase. The source of all things are the works of God, and they're magnified by the overwhelming expression of His strength. You know, um, it's interesting that when you don't know how heavy something is, and then you see someone pick it up, it's not that impressive. One of the things, I, I love watching fitness competitions. <laughs> I'm not a sports person, but for whatever reason, CrossFit is like the thing I love. Um, I know. Um, I saw a guy, his name is Matt Fraser. He picked 380 pounds up off the floor in a barbell. And he put it on his shoulders here. And then he lifted it over his head. 380 pounds. That is um, twice my body weight give or take, like it was nothing. I can barely get like maybe 
two thirds of that off the ground just by myself. It was like giving everything I've got, right? And yet he made it look like he was nothing. One of the reasons why that my jaw hit the floor is because I realized just how heavy that was, right? Have you ever thought that the, that the things that you are facing in your life are so heavy because God wants to show you just how strong He is? That He wants to display the richness of His glory to you. Everything is small from, Lord, I don't know how we're going to pay our grocery bill this week. To everything as big as, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I don't know how I'm going to survive this moment of crisis. I don't know how I'm going to overcome this moral dilemma, this failure of, of, of my, my professional or my personal life. Understand that God wants to display His power to us. The primary illustration of this, He gives us in the last two verses. Look at this. Verses 22 and 23. He said, talking about Jesus, He says, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He uses Christ as the primary example of his strength. He's saying, okay, you don't think that I'm strong enough? Think about me saving you from your sin. That in and of itself is a cataclysmic event. That, that the idea that somehow God can't be integrated in our life and sanctifying us and working things together for our good and being, able, and being intimately involved with us along the, along the way in the process. He says, you don't think that God can do that, but look at what He did in your life, that He saved you. This primary illustration illustrates the might of His strength. And that is His resurrection. What God did is He, he, he made the central point of all life the cross, and His resurrection from the cross. And notice what He did. He says, Far above all rule and authority, this is where He placed Him, and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Here's the thing. Is that this spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the full knowledge of God points us to the, to the unyielding reality that God cares for us. Not just a wishful thinking cares for us, but an intimate, overwhelmingly powerful way. This means that we can walk in confidence no matter what we're walking through, whether we have a family member who is, who is destroying everything around them and hurting us in the process, whether we're going through the uncertainty of what's going to happen with our future, whether it's a loved one that we can't seem to control that is, that is like a bull in a china shop, whether that's our own professional career or our relationship as a husband and a wife, we have to understand that God is in the details. He is in the action. But He's not just sitting there fixing broken things. He's orchestrated all of these things, and the thing that we have to focus on the most is making sure that we have His perspective. If we have His perspective, what that means is that when we struggle, we will have grace for each other. When one of us is struggling, we can lift, each, we can lift the other up. When one of us is, uh, is hurting, we can comfort the other. When one of us is dealing with, with physical challenges, that we won't have compassion fatigue because we can be filled with the Spirit. I was reminded this week, September 29, 2016, 
I, um, back when I was doing political thing, I had, I had acquired a, a lot of hurt and scars over those years. And I began to, dis, to dismiss them and not deal with them. And I began to drink alcohol a lot, heavily, bourbon particularly. And after several years, um, I was running from that. But on September 29, 2016, I woke up to a letter on my desk. And in that moment of weakness, my wife called me to a reputation that I should have been holding myself to. And she said, this is not who you are. This isn't consistent with who you, who you teach you are. This isn't consistent with who you are. She, she's known me since I was 16 years old. And that was the moment I chose. The reality of this is not just that this is a theological exercise. Or this is something that we can think of and, and um, make us feel good. This is a true, practical, real-life example of what God has done for us. That, yes, we will experience hurt and we will experience challenges. But if we have God's perspective, we can point each other to the cross. And God makes all things new. Here I am standing in front of you six years later. And God has redeemed me completely. This is the power of having a godly perspective. Who you choose to see the world through matters. If you choose to see the world through your lens, who you are, your priorities, you'll experience nothing but pain. But if you choose to have the perspective and the spirit of wisdom that comes from the knowledge of God, He will make all things new. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.